Welcome to another bonus episode recorded live with audience pre-COVID-19 at the Conversion Hotel Conference in November 2019 on the island of Texel in the Netherlands. This session is with Emily Robinson, Senior Data Scientist at Warby Parker, and Lucas Vermeer, Director of Experimentation at Booking.com. The topic of this session is Data Science Can Do What? And in her earlier session that day, Emily said that real progress starts when you put your work online for others to see and comment on, uh, which in this case was about GitHub. And someone from the audience wondered how that works out in larger companies where a manager or even a legal department might not be overly joyous about that. Uh, so I asked Emily about her thoughts on that. Yes, I should have clarified. Uh, when I talk about posting things online, it's on personal projects. So sometimes uh, you can clear it with your company. Uh, so for example, I did uh, post about some simulation based on problems I was facing at Etsy, and that was fine. I cleared it with the legal department. I've given presentations about what I've learned about A-B testing at the companies I've worked on. But you definitely want to talk with them, and generally they won't uh, accept you posting their data. So projects where you're analyzing data is often where I advise to find some personal projects and some public data. Yeah. I, I, so I literally presented something that I posted online yeah. <laughs> in my talk after. And so I, I was, this is a great setup from Emily because she was literally, she was talking about the tools. And then in my talk, I, I actually was, used exactly those tools. So yeah. it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah. Um, but probably check first. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's probably easier for personal projects, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, Lucas, um, SRM. Uh, checking for SRM uh, might make you feel good, like, uh, oh, I fixed uh, all my issues now with uh, my sample size because I checked it mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Lucas' tool. Mm -hmm. now, I'm, now I'm all good. Right. Um, but there might still be quite some issues with the quality oh. of your sample, right? Uh, so can you name, if, can yeah. you name of the, 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 a few of the more serious ones oh. uh, and, and how to cope with them. So serious problems that would not be captured by SRM? Uh, yeah, and then huh. you still have. Well, so in, in data science, I don't, I don't know if Emily's familiar with this, but there's this concept of type one and type two errors, and, and then someone added type three. Uh, which it t So type one error is a false positive, type two is a false negative, and type three is you answered the wrong question. Uh, and I think this is, uh, this is not really a data problem, but it's quite, quite common that people will try and answer a question with the data that they have. So they, they'll go like, I need to answer this question, let me see what I already have. And then they'll come up with an answer based on, on what they have. That's not necessarily the answer that people needed. Uh, so, yeah. so I think that's, that's something I'd watch out for, but it's not really a check that you can, you can run. I mean, to, okay. to be clear, like SRM is not a panacea, right? It's not a perfect um, way to go, yes, this data is certainly correct and I can now no longer make any mistakes. So it's definitely not that. Um, what it is, 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 is a very simple check that will capture a whole spectrum of data quality issues. Uh, and so there's really no reason that you wouldn't do this. And I think that's, that was the point of my, my talk, right? If you do one thing w when you're checking uh, your experiments, you should be doing an SRM check because yeah. it's so simple and it's, uh, the implications are so broad. And when you figure out that something is wrong, mm -hmm. um, how often do you actually find out what was wrong? <laughs> yeah, the, we actually have the, this was part of our interview. So when we wrote the paper, uh, Alexander Fabian, uh, the main author, uh, made a, an interview script of all the questions that we would ask of people that we were interviewing to gather uh, the raw data. And one of the questions was, how often do you actually uh, discover 
uh, what is the root cause of the, the SRM. And there, an interesting distinction emerged, at least in the interviews I was doing, which is uh, people working with clients or uh, agencies uh, would say uh, not always, or, uh, but be because they are limited by time. Mm -hmm. And they're and they're working working with clients, and so at some point they'll say, "Well, uh, we give up. We have no more hours to spend on this." Whereas uh, people in my my group uh, basically said, "Well, 100% of the time we figure out what it is. Sometimes it takes a year, yeah. right? But we will always, always, always keep digging because we take this uh, so seriously, and and we have time to dedicate to this. This is our own, this is our work, right? This is our daily daily job." So. And we don't have these constraints of you working with a client. And the client might say, well, you spent 10 hours working on the experiment this week. What did you do? And you go, well, I was trying to figure out why it was broken. And that's not really an acceptable answer, I think, in, yeah. a, in an agency setting. So Fair enough. Do we already have an uh, audience question? Anyone who wants to go to the mic? No, I can go on. I have many questions, <laughs> but it's up to you guys. Um, so uh, I think it was Lucas. Uh, you mentioned two tools out there that do do a good job. In uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. People, people I, I, I very uh, so I very purposely steered away from uh, naming and shaming. Right? I don't. I don't want this to be about who's doing an SRM check and who's yep. not. Um, I I just wanted to be. Uh, I want there to be awareness that this exists. Yeah, and that ev I think everyone should be doing and this. And probably it's an easy check for to look at your own tool to see to find out if they do it or not. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I think it, at this point in the industry, it's safe to assume that your your A/B testing platform does not do this. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's there's two. Um, I don't actually use any of those tools, so I, I can't speak to their yeah. their quality. But okay, I think it's right safe enough. to assume that they don't. Uh, and certainly, once you find one, and you're going to find one. You're going to find something that, that has an SRM. Then you know whether they are telling you about this or, or not. Yeah. And then it's a matter, I think, of uh, convincing vendors that this is something that we care about. Ultimately, we're their users, right? We are the people who use their platforms. If we tell the vendors that this is something that is important to us, um, and I try to argue in my talk that this should be important to you, right? The, the quality of your decisions uh, should be the most important thing when you're running uh, experiments. And so we should, we should try and convince the vendors that this is something that we deeply care about. And then the, um, since it's like trivial to add, uh, I don't yeah. see why they couldn't. No. Uh, and, th and that's also like part of the, the, the plugin that I presented that I'm working on is more of a proof of concept to show how easy this is, right? I think on the one hand, I want to, make it, I want to provide something that's useful to people so that they can actually use this and they don't have to manually compute uh, SRM check, uh, everyone. Uh, but I also wanted to show that this can just be simply done. Yeah. And so that no one can say, well, you know, it's complicated. This is not. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Emily, so uh, in your talk, you spoke about uh, three different kinds of uh, data scientists. Um, how, do I, how do I create awareness within my company that there are actually <laughs> three different people <laughs> they should be hiring? <laughs> how do you go about doing that? Yeah, one thing I didn't talk about is often for an organization's first data scientist or in a startup, uh, someone is playing all three of those roles, but something to think about there is that they're usually not um, as high a level as you might get in a specialist. And because often that's not what you need. Usually an organization's first data scientist, they're spending a lot of time, uh, depending on how much data engineering has been done, uh, working on some data engineering, uh, setting some tables up, doing some basic analyses that no one's ever looked at before. And maybe part of that is a little bit of machine learning. 
a little bit of you know helping uh, set up some experimentation stuff. But I do think for a company's uh, first uh, data scientist, first couple, it's okay to have some more generalists, but not to expect that person to be, I would say, like a, a, a unicorn who's world class at all of them, because that's actually not what you need at that point. Like many, many problems do not need someone with a, with a PhD in AI no, to it, solve them. And it's a, I can only speak to my own experience, but, but when I started booking, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. Right? There was lots of stuff that didn't actually require a PhD to figure out. And you, you had this great example of a lot of data science is actually counting and maybe some division. And, and you, can get, you can get a long way with like proper counting and division. Yeah. And so I, I totally agree with Emily that when, when you're only starting out with this, having someone who's a bit of a generalist, maybe like a CRO kind of you know, background, someone who has actually done like lots of different... Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the the story I think it resonated at least with me with uh, uh, with hiring a CRO specialist, mm -hmm. um, which is a weird term because most CRO people are more like generalists. Uh, you need design skills, you need developer skills, you need analytic skills. Uh, ideally, you'll have s some psychology skills. Um, so there's a whole range of things that you need to have, and you might not find that single single person with all these skills. Right? I, I don't know about you, Emily, but this is actually what attracts me to this crowd. Right? I don't consider myself a CRO person uh, at all, but I, when I w walk around at this conference, uh, I see a lot of like-minded people. And I think it's because uh, data scientists, just like CRO specialists, are generalists, and they have a, a wide variety of interests, and uh, data-driven decision-making is one of them, which is my, more my uh, field. I think CRO is more interested in the usability side of things or the, the, the optimization side of things, but there's a lot of overlap between data science and CRO for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Lucas, uh, is SRM basically making multi-arm bandit testing obsolete? <laughs> this is the third time I've had this question <laughs> today. Uh, so, uh, what the SRM check does is it compares the expected ratio against the observed ratio, right? But when, you, when you're using a bandit, what is the expected ratio? Because the bandit is constantly adjusting the expected ratio. Um, Which so you shouldn't be doing, that's what you told us. But if you want <laughs> to use uh, standard statistics, you should be doing it. Yeah. But, uh, but if you're using a bandit, all of that is out the window anyway. Um, and so when you're, when you're doing a bandit, the SRM check no longer works. So don't do yeah. it, don't, do, don't use it. Um, but the standard statistics also no longer works, which is why when you talk to vendors about uh, banded algorithms and how they do statistics on top of them, they'll often do something like uh, weighting or uh, weighing the, the different um, uh, samples, or they have some way of segmenting the, the results, or they have some way of having a, a fixed control group. Uh, but they have some uh, additional method of dealing with the fact that the, uh, the bandit is constantly adjusting the, the sample ratio. Which, which you should do, so. Yeah, okay. Anyone? Is everyone, yeah. is any, everyone just afraid of us? Yeah. Very afraid. <laughs> so After your talk about SRM. If, if it's too uh, deep, we, we can go up uh, yeah. if, if you guys want to. Yeah. Uh, Ruben, uh, CRO Manager Online Dialogue. Um, first of all, thank you very much for the great talks this morning. Actually, you're both together in the panel right here. Let's see if we can combine the talks. <laughs> um, I've been actively tracking SRM for a while already, mm. and it's hard work when you find it to solve the issue. So the question is, can AI solve that issue someday? Ah. <laughs> that's, that's such a good question. Yeah, I think some of the AI machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> AI to solve SRM. Well, you 
but doesn't booking have some of these checks automatically, right? Uh, like looking at different um, breakdowns of browsers and other stuff like that? We, so in, like many uh, experimentation platforms, we have breakdowns and we do SRM checks on the breakdowns. Uh, so that makes finding out if there's a particular segment uh, is, that's problematic, makes it very easy. Uh, that's actually the second thing, I think, on the list of, rule of th rules of thumb that we suggest. Uh, Microsoft has, has the same thing, right? So, so step one is you look at the overall report and you see if something's clearly broken. Mm -hmm. Step two is you go into each individual segment and you see whether there's a particular browser or a particular language. Um, well, but the question here is whether AI would solve this. So I think like, if I look at the state of pl the playing field out there, the reality is that most platforms don't even check. So I think step one is check. And then step two would be once you uncover the issues, if you want to help a user understand the root cause, then segments help. Maybe you can automatically surface in the UI segments that are actually uh, problematic. So you could, uh, you could automatically say, well, we found an SRM and maybe it's uh, Internet Explorer 6 or some seems to be a problem uh, here. So that's something you could do. But that, wouldn't, that would be, if we go back to Guy's talk on uh, yesterday on Friday, he talked about AI at these different levels where really you start out with rules-based, right? That's step one, and I think, I think that's where we're at, right? Step one, do check. Step two, think of some rules that you could implement that would make it easier for the user to, to find these problems. But that's a far cry removed from, from AI, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think, um, I'm, not, I'm not a panelist, but I think my personal <laughs> answer would be, yes, AI will fix it, but they will have wiped out humanity before that. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I also think with AI and machine learning, it's often still very helpful to have a human in the loop. Yes. So Stitch Fix uh, is a clothing company that ships you five outfits, and they do it with a combination of algorithms based on what you say you want and sizes, other information you fill out. But then a human stylist kind of picks the clothes that the algorithm suggests and puts them together and writes a note and all of that and sends it off. And so I think <coughs> there's going to be very few problems where it's only going to be you know, machine learning or, or, or AI, and there's always going to be that, that space for a human with some domain knowledge to come in and contribute. Absol absolutely, and human in the loop computing, uh, they also call this. And I think there's even a feedback loop there where the, what the human does in that loop is not just play part in this one recommendation to this one customer, but they also provide more information for the machine learning. So, so whatever, if, if this is, stitch, let's take the Stitch Fix example, right? So if uh, the, the human goes, yes, this is a good recommendation computer. We're going to send this and I'm going to add a note. And then every once in a while they go, this is ridiculous. We're sending this person five pairs of jeans and nothing else, right? Then that, that feedback, right? The, the, they have now have insight in when the algorithm fails and this can feed back into the machine learning itself. So the, the human can say, this, this recommendation I'm going to change in this way. And a, a good recommendation system with uh, a, with human in the loop will then adjust, right? It will use that information. So the human in the loop is not just a, a necessity for the operational element. It's also something that helps the algorithm uh, improve. Uh, so these feedback systems, I really like this about uh, Guy's talk that he talked about re reinforcement learning because um, that's essentially what you're doing here, right? You're, you're, you're thinking about this in terms of a improving process, continuously improving uh, the, the recommendations. Can you have uh, a SRM mismatch on a session level, but not on a user level, or yes. vice versa? Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, uh, and Ronnie has mentioned this in some of his papers as well. If you, if you flip a coin, who gets to see treatment control at the user level? 
but then you measure things at the session level, then any time uh, more users in treatment will, will generate more sessions, you will essentially have an SRM at the session level. Uh, and, and ironically, this is often what you want, right? You, you want your experiment to cause people to have more sessions. But then let's take a, a simple example. Um, say that I'm measuring uh, conversion, uh, so whether people purchase something, and I'm measuring at the session level. So I'm measuring uh, how many sessions led to a conversion. Uh, imagine I have an experiment that makes people who were not purchasing come back the next day and purchase. Now, on the one hand, purchases will go up because uh, these people are coming back and purchasing, but sessions goes up by approximately the same amount or probably more. And so if you look in that instance at purchases per session, it will go down. So you sold more, you made more money, customers are probably happy, that's why they're coming back. Uh, but you look at the results for your test and, and your main KPI is going down. Yep. So in, in those cases, I, I, I struggle a little bit with uh, session level metrics in, in experimentation. Uh, but yeah, you can definitely have an SRM at the yep. session level when you're flipping on the user level. Okay. Any more audience questions? I have a couple more. Uh, what is this with you guys and Harry Potter? <laughs> what? <laughs> did you reference Harry Potter? I don't think I did, did I? You had the slip there then. Yeah, I, I, I just picked someone's. Uh, Dumb someone's you had Dumbledore, post. right? Hmm? You had Dumbledore or Slytherin? No, that was. Uh, Orly. 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 Dumbledore. Yeah. 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 Orly is Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a popular nerd thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a similar question here, and that's uh, uh, how do you have time? Uh, how do you have enough time writing pi papers and doing analysis while keeping up with the latest memes? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter. Twitter. Uh, yeah. Sleep less. Sleep less. Uh, I don't. I, really I, I mean, uh, do, do you want like a real answer? So, uh, no. so it's funny. So funny story. <laughs> I was talking to a bunch of academics, uh, and I said, uh, oh "Boy, I would I would really love uh, to join academia at some point." Like uh, when I'm tired of industry in, in a bunch of years, I want to join academia. So I finally have time to write papers. And they looked at me and rolled their eyes and said, you have no idea. Like we're writing these papers in the evenings. <laughs> You're laughing, yeah. Yeah, so, so apparently in academia, it's the same thing. They, they also like, you write these papers in your weekends and your afternoons and you yeah. take your time off. Yeah. It's, it's, and and it's teaching, teaching during the day. Yep. One of my final ones. So, um, talking about groups on tests that are not equal, how do you correct for a test uh, that takes place at the bottom of the page comparing to the A group, which doesn't have the treatment at the bottom of the page? This is a very specific question. I think what it's asking is, for example, are you saying like if the control is triggered when someone visits the page, but the treatment's only triggered when someone goes to the bottom? I and think so, so you yeah. have a lot more people in the control and treatment. I mean, my yeah. general answer to that is I always trigger only on people who would have uh, seen the change. So it should be triggering at the this, this same moment for the control and the treatment. Uh, so there's like a couple of papers talking about that. Um, also in the idea of like, let's say you're changing the checkout page and you're changing an offer for free shipping. Um, and it'll only, you know, be a change from what people would have seen for $25 to $35. And so you want to trigger just on that because otherwise you're adding noise to your experiment if you're having people enter who would see the same thing in the control and the treatment. Yeah. I'm, I'm so torn about this topic. So, uh, so I am, 
Why? So you say it adds noise. Why is that a problem? The power so goes down. The power goes down, right. So, so, so the, the reason I'm torn is that um, the, you will have less power if you just include everyone in this experiment, less statistical power, right? So you won't be able to pick up smaller effects. So, so the reason that you trigger and the reason that you zoom in is that you want to pick up smaller effects. But it comes at a price, and the price is risk. Right? So, so whenever you do this sort of um, triggering that's on the client depending on behavior, so then um, there's lots of things that can go wrong because you're dependent on JavaScript running in lots of different browsers and they all react differently to user behavior. And so triggering, I think, makes sense in the sense that it increases statistical power. So, so there might be a need to do this, but it is a trade-off between that additional power and the risk that you take in, in having a, bias or missing data in your, in your measurement. And I think it, it's really difficult to give like a general statement of here's how you should make that trade-off. Because it really, really depends on what's going to be in that footer. Yeah. Right? But, I, but I think you can say probably it shouldn't trigger on, for example, the, the page load and the control and then like some JavaScript thing in the treatment, right? It should always <laughs> right. trigger on the, on yes. the same thing in the control and treatment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay, I was assuming that was a given. Yeah, no, so, <laughs> no, so you should definitely, uh, uh, the triggering should be identical in the, in the treatment and control. And, and uh, this is actually one of the things that in the paper, uh, the SRM paper, was one of the reasons that SRMs occur is when you use different triggering for treatment and, uh, and control. And it was, it was one of those that I had never thought of because in, in the booking infrastructure, this just never happens because we wrote the APIs and the infrastructure in such a way that this is, this is impossible, essentially. Um, but I talked to practitioners using other platforms and, and using different implementations and especially uh, companies using redirect uh, strategies, where this is actually possible that you trigger on, um, let's say you trigger the control on when you land on the page, and the treatment, you redirect, and then you trigger on the page that you land on. Now, that seems like a subtle difference, uh, but it does mean that if the redirect fails, then these people will not be triggered into, into treatment, which then causes an SRM. Um, and so you, you, you want to be absolutely sure that the triggering is identical in, in treatment yep. and control. And uh, the, the article you wrote, uh, uh, was it already published or was that the one pending publication? Or the one? The, with the paper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's already published. That was, uh, published. Yeah, yeah. That was a, a sample original mismatch of taxonomy and rules of thumb. Yeah. Uh, and I, th I think it was KDD that we published that. I will we'll look it up and put it in the show notes for the oh, nice. Thank <laughs> you. for the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, so in the, it's a it's an academic paper, right? So, yeah. so and it, but we we try to keep it as uh, readable as possible. I don't think it's very very dense, uh, impenetrable material. But you know, uh, I'm I'm obviously biased here. We, uh, we can start with the intro and the and the conclusion and see if. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the other thing that I presented in the talk was I'm trying to um, provide more usable, directly usable tools like the plugin, yep. like the website where you can test for, for SRM. So maybe add those to the show notes so people can use yep, them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm just trying to get everyone to, to be aware that yeah. this, is a, this is a thing. Because like, the triggering is a good example, right? That's something where um, making sure that triggering is identical in control and treatment is important. And one of the ways that you would figure out that this is not the case is through an, an SRM. And again, it's not a panacea, right? You might not, yeah. you might not catch it, um, but it's a... It's a start. Yeah. So uh, uh, moving away from, from SRM, mm. um, it's your job to teach people at, um, at Booking mm -hmm. uh, more about statistics. Mm -hmm. And the way you do this is through stories. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so can you tell us what was what, what are the li- one of the latest additions uh, to your storybook? <laughs> uh. So Lucas, well, you can probably tell better yourself, but mainly Lucas is doing this to um, uh, have people uh, make it easier to remember right. those difficult statistical concepts, um, and it's not necessarily fun. Um, but so reading the pa- <laughs> reading I, I the academic papers on it, but right. <laughs> turned mean, into a story. We have we have so booking, uh, so so in so in booking experimentation culture is pretty strong because we care deeply about uh, the impact that our work has on the user experience. So we, so we want to make sure that when we have an idea and we put it on our website, that we actually test that it does the thing that we want it uh, to do, that it works. Um, and so I don't have to really do a lot of convincing that testing is important. Um, but then the next question is, how do I actually do this and how do I interpret uh, results? So, so a lot of the training we do is more around helping people understand and interpret uh, uh, statistics. I think, Emily, you do pretty much the same thing, right? Um, and I've tried to use uh, stories, uh, but I haven't really added anything to the... This is a, like, this, you're putting me on the spot, man. <laughs> I haven't really added any stories. Cause, cause I, you I, you I can tell an old story, too, if I, you want. I started doing this years ago, and I, I'm, I'm just rehashing the same, the same stories. So, well, well, I can make a, a pitch for something else oh, on yeah. Twitter for folks yeah. to look up. Uh, there's a woman named Alison Horst who mm. is going to be, who's just become an artist in residence at our studio, which is a development environment for art. Mm-hmm. And she makes drawings actually, so with little oh. monsters, and she shows different. Um, some of them are, are stats related, some of them are related to functions in R, but they're mm. really fun because she was a teacher and she found like when she had an introduction to programming classes, she'd show some code and, and she was very excited and she's like, hey, you see all the cool things that, that this can do, but the students weren't really getting excited and you know, and it felt a little bit inaccessible, so she started making these drawings. And so I really recommend looking them up because it's like a great way, I think, finding different ways to engage people, whether yeah. drawings or stories. Yeah, and I guess uh, XKCD also has a couple of those explanations in cartoon form. Yes. We, we can just, oh, this, this, let's just send them the link. Hopefully they'll get it. The, the <laughs> thing that the thing that inspired me to start start doing this in form of stories was a, a book called uh, "What Is a P-Value Anyway." And it's a very short, very thick, thin book, uh, and it's basically a statistician telling stories, uh, explaining basic statistical concepts. So that's where I got some of the stories actually t- took directly from uh, from the book. So it has this great example of uh, one night he's playing basketball with Michael Jordan, which. Probably not true, but you know, he's, he's, the, the story is he's playing par- basketball with Michael Jordan, and um, they do uh, five pointers, so try to put the ball in the net. Um, and Michael Jordan hits seven out of seven, and he hits four out of seven, um, but that difference is not statistically significant, so he's just as good at basketball as Michael Jordan. And I, so that, I like that example because you, you laugh, right? You go like, that's ridiculous, but that is what people do often when they look at an insignificant result, they say, oh, well, there's no significant difference, so A and B are the same. And it, it, that is literally saying that you're just as good as basketball as Michael Jordan is. So this book is filled with examples uh, uh, like this. And I hope in, in the talk, the, the paper I used uh, in the beginning, um, the uh, pitfalls of experimenting on the web, the, the, I love that paper for exactly the same reason, because it's using actual experiments to tell a story about why this particular problem of SRM is so, so problematic. Uh, and so the, for, the, for the people listening to the podcast, the, this, the experiment they ran is uh, essentially showing that thinking about eyeliner makes people lose weight. 
Uh, and this is such a ridiculous conclusion that when, when you explain the experiment, you understand that this, this conclusion cannot be true. Therefore, there must be something uh, wrong with this experiment. And once you try to sort of set your mind to trying to figure out what's wrong with it, you understand how this would apply to other experiments that you run. And I, I really love this sort of storytelling and trying to get people to understand statistics rather than throwing um, uh, mathematical equations at them and then just hoping that somehow yeah. they will understand. Yeah, I, I do think it's important for those folks listening to the podcast who weren't at the, Lucas's presentation to understand that he was trying to mime people putting on eyeliner and he right. later admitted he didn't know how people did it, so he was miming putting on mascara instead. <laughs> really? Yes, <laughs> that was mascara. <laughs> you, don't, okay. you don't put on eyeliner by like waving your hand in front of your face. Wow, today, uh, I, today I learned. Uh, so, I, so, I, yeah, so I literally do not know how to do this, which, which is the whole point of that experiment, right? The, the, the and the, the, the problem is that the men drop out of the experiment because they don't know how to put on eyeliner and then they, they refuse to participate, which is why the, the SRM occurs. Uh, and the same is true for me. Like, I have no idea what eyeliner you okay, we'll do a tutorial later. Yeah, yeah well, I feel an conference session coming up. <laughs> <on> this, uh, <laughs> probably not the one in the sauna. We can, we bath, can do eyeliner in the sauna. Would it run? Like, does it? Is that the one that runs? Out? <laughs> <laughs> or is that, or is that mascara? Again? I'm so confused. Do we have one final audience question, or should we wrap it up? Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm Anouk, account strategist at uh, Power Digital Marketing, and uh, Emily. I'm just out of curiosity. I'm wondering, what is your main uh, goal? Your main motivation for writing your own book? Like. What kind of vision do you feel like you have to share with the, uh, with the world? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so for listeners, I'm writing a book called Build a Career in Data Science with my co-author Jacqueline Nolis. It's career advice for aspiring and junior data scientists. And really, the, the motivation for any folks who, who've written a book is, is certainly not financial in terms of the amount of time you spend writing it compared to the, the proceeds. ROI is terrible. Yeah. Um, but really, it was because for Jacqueline and I both felt, because it's such a new field, um, you know, it's, it's career paths aren't really well defined. A lot of folks may be the first data scientist at their company. They don't have someone to look up to. There's a lot of folks wanting to entering the field. They, they try to Google, like, how to become a data scientist. There's millions of articles. So it's really being the book that both of us wish we had and uh, also getting some different perspectives. So at the end of every chapter, we interview a different data scientist because we knew, you know, we, we've learned a lot. We've talked to some folks, but we also wanted to make sure we included a lot of different voices in the data science field. Very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Emily. Thank you, uh, Lucas. Thank you, Guido. Um, thank we have you. 10 minutes left for the next session, which will be with uh, Kevin Anderson and uh, Denise Visser.